started a series several weeks ago. I think we're in week seven. And it's basically based on this. Jesus wants to be your king. If you read through the, the Gospel of Matthew, actually you read through um, the whole New Testament, it says very, very clearly that Jesus came to establish God's kingdom over creation, to, to restore it, to renew it, to reclaim it again. And that if Jesus came to introduce a kingdom, then Jesus is a king. And if he's a king then, the question is, is he our king? Have we received him? Do we welcome him? Do we embrace his kingdom as our kingdom and welcome him into our lives as our king? And the question that we've been asking is, well, what qualifications does he bring to the table? What's Jesus' resume for ruling our life? And just by way of review through the series, we looked at first his pedigree, um, that monarchies are based on royal lineage. Does Jesus have the right lineage? Does he come from the right bloodline to meet the criteria to be the king? If you turn to the very opening verses of Matthew chapter 1, the, the, the first thing that we find in Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus. Not exactly an attention grabber. You don't open it up and say, wow, this is just like ripped me right into the story, right? You read 42 generations of this was the son of this was the son of this was the son of this, 42 generations. But there's a point to it that in introducing Matthew with, these, with this genealogy, he's saying Jesus is the son of David who was the king that God had promised the throne would be, David's throne would be eternal. So Jesus had to be from David's line. Matthew's saying he meets the criteria. That he had to be a son of Abraham. Well, if he's a son of David, he would be a son of Abraham. But Jesus is the son of man. But Jesus, as you come to the end of the, end of the genealogy, was not the son of Joseph, but the son, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born. And so Matthew expounds in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, was told by the angel, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, that he is the son of man, but that he is also the son of God. And it is Jesus' humanity that makes it, qualifies him for the mission that he's on to represent us, to be a substitute for us, to cover our sin. But it's his divinity, it's that he is the son of God that enables him to execute it. So he meets the royal lineage requirements to be the king of God's kingdom. We look secondly at his education. Jesus was, was raised in a Jewish home. His mother or his father we know was a righteous man. We know that his mother was a humble servant. We know from Luke um, that he was raised according to the Jewish customs that they went to the festival as was, as was their custom. So he was raised to know the Torah, to know the law and the prophets. That was a part of his education as a child. But from an early age, he was an advanced placement student. 
When he goes to the temple at 12 years old, it's like they, they're already marveling at his wisdom and his understanding. And as he grows up, they ask, how does this man get so much learning without having been taught? He hadn't gone to one of the rabbinical schools. He hadn't been trained beyond, you know, kind of in a, in a Jewish home. He hadn't been trained beyond uh, an elementary school education. He, he hadn't gone to college but yet he knew more than the people who had. When Jesus answered the question, how does he know so much? He said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And he expounds on that. I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is a father living in me who is doing his work. That Jesus was homeschooled. By God the Father. And when Jesus spoke, he was speaking the words of God. His educational background. And he says, well, this is verifiable. You can know that what I'm telling you is true. If my words are from the Father or not. Anyone, he says in John chapter 7, who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Choose to do the will of God. You will know that what I'm telling you is from the Father. So we looked at his pedigree, his royal lineage. We looked at his education. We looked at his vast work experience. Uh, Jesus had all kinds of jobs. In those jobs, he demonstrated a mastery over the human condition. He, he healed diseases blind people, lame people, that he ministered to people's anxiety and depression, met them in their loneliness, accepted them in their shame and rejection. He addressed issues of pride and greed, control and manipulation. He demonstrated relational skills. He understood, we see in his vast work experience, that he gets us, he gets people he understands us. That he also had mastery over the physical world. That he understood things like how seeds produced plants and how trees produced fruit and how animals and the animal world worked and how kingdoms worked. That he understood the physical realm in the natural ways and also in supernatural ways that he spoke and calmed the seas, that he walked on water, that he took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people plus women and children. We see his authority over the spiritual world, that when he showed up, the demons fleed. So you might say his work experience can be summed up in this way, that Jesus was master human. He was a master human being. Paul would go on to say that he is, he was, is the second Adam. You have, we have Adam, 
And Adam, through Adam, sin entered the world. And then Jesus comes, and because he's the Son of Man, he because he is the Son of Man, he he qualifies that he is man. But because he comes from the seed of the heavenly Father through, by the Holy Spirit, he's Adam minus sin, which enables him again to fulfill this role. But he didn't wield his mastery. with an iron fist. He didn't wield it with a holier-than-thou attitude. He was actually holier-than-thou. If anybody ever was, he absolutely was. But But he didn't hold it over people. He was driven, you see, in everything he did by compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, like subjects without a king, like children without a father. We looked at Jesus' references. John the Baptist, Peter, the demons, Matthew, the Pharisees, Richie Rich, the poor little rich boy, Mrs. Thunder, Judas, the Roman card at the cross. People who had believed in Jesus, received Jesus, accepted his kingdom, and commended it to us, and people who had met Jesus, encountered him, and weren't able or willing to submit to his rule. And what we saw in that is that people who still held on to the vestiges of their kingdom, who still thought they could somehow make their life work without God, rejected it. And the people who had come to the end of their own kingdom, the people who had realized that they had failed states, were people who were willing to receive it. And finally, we looked at his background check and discovered that Jesus had a felony conviction that he was convicted for the sins of humanity and sentenced to death by crucifixion. But because he is the son of God and the son of man, Jesus' punishment renders the citizens of his kingdom of heaven innocent. And I finished last week with this statement. If this is true, Jesus' criminal background is the strongest case for his rule in our lives because the crime he was punished for is ours. The question that I want to close this series with is this. Is it true? Is it true? People lie on their resumes. The former Former CEOs of Yahoo and Radio Shack lost their jobs because they lied on their resumes. The former head coach of Notre Dame University lost his football coach, lost his job because he said that he had done things that he didn't do on his resume. In fact, I read this this morning that 30 to 70 percent of Americans actually admit to lying on their resumes. (laughs) Wow. So how do we know 
that this resume that we've been going over, that we've been extrapolating from Matthew for the past seven, six weeks, how do we know that what we have here is really true, that Jesus really had this, this education, this work experience, that all this, what we're learning, what we've read, is true? How reliable is the information that we have? In Jesus' day... He was a relative nobody from a distant corner of the Roman Empire. Now, he wasn't known in a vast part of the, of the Roman world. Just this one little corner. Now, imagine in two years, in, in 2,000 years, somebody decides they want to learn about Tim Vanderbon and President Joe Biden. And the internet is erased because they realize that people kind of come to the conclusion, we don't want everyone to know everything about us and everything that we've ever done and everything we've ever thought and everything we've ever ate and every place we've ever been. So we're going to erase it. And now they're going to try and find out information about Joe Biden and Tim Vanderbond 2,000 years into the future just with stuff that's been written in books. They're not going to have a whole lot of information about me. But I expect that in 2,000 years, that if people, if the world makes it 2,000 years, that the leader of the free world for four years or not, or more, will somewhere be remembered in the same ways that we know about people like Alexander the Great. How do we even know that this human being from a remote corner of the Roman Empire even existed. There's a communist dictionary that says that he didn't. That he was a mythological character. Remarkably, despite his anonymity in the days that he walked the earth, even without opening up the Bible, we know a, a lot about Jesus from other external biblical sources. And I'll just give you a couple examples. Josephus Flavius was a respected Jewish historian, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he rejected Jesus as a Messiah. Writing in 90 AD, so this is within um, 50 years of Jesus' death, and he's, he's writing history for future generations, and he writes in his um, tomes, the Antiquities, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him, did not give up their affection for him, and the tribe of Christians so-called after him has still to this day not disappeared. 90 AD, he's saying, we know that there was this guy named Jesus. Tacitus, a Roman historian, writing in AD 15, not a Christian, writes about the burning of Rome by the emperor Nero. And he writes, Nero fastened the guilt for 
the fire, which he actually um, had started himself, and afflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a deadly superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Two non-believing historians, Jewish, Roman, give a basic account of Jesus' life that's consistent with what we find in the New Testament. That Christianity had its origins in a man named Jesus Christ, that he had followers, the, disciple, the Bible calls them disciples, that he was a teacher, that he did surprising feats, the Bible calls them miracles, that he was condemned by the Jews, that he was killed by the Romans, that he was crucified under the rule of Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and that after his death, Christianity grew instead of died. The Bible says that was because of the resurrection. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Extra-biblical proof that there was this man named Jesus. Now, we know far more about him from what we find in the New Testament. Four uh, biographies written about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been unpacking Matthew the past several weeks. But can we trust what we have in these biographies as an accurate record of what was written? How do, we, how do we know that what's really here was A, what really happened, and B, when it was written down, that was, was written down, we, can, we have a reliable record of what was written. Now, this is not, this is kind of like the genealogy of Matthew. This is not an attention grabber. But it's a really useful resource for understanding that what we're talking about and what we're reading and what many of us have staked our kingdoms on in subjecting our kingdom to his and to God's kingdom, that it actually is grounded. That there's reasons to believe beyond it's just what I believe. So I'm going to ask you to indulge me, okay? Focus is not... We're going to get there. There's a science called textual criticism. It's a resource that they use, a tool that they use to, to identify the reliability of ancient documents. And textual criticism has a couple key pieces. One of the pieces is this. The textual criticism looks at how many copies we have of ancient documents. Because the more copies you have of something, the more that you can compare them to each other, and the more that you can compare them to each other, the more you can be confident that the copy, that what you're reading is actually what was written. What was written. Number of copies. The second component of textual criticism is the time lapse between the time when it was written, 
when we have the earliest copies. So, we're going to look at a couple charts. Herodotus and Thucydides were historians that wrote in the 5th century B.C. The first copies we have of what these historians wrote, this is the stuff you actually, if you took world history when you were in school, you got your information from these guys. They wrote in the 5th century, the earliest copies we have are from A.D. 900. There was 1,300 years between the time they wrote their history and the time we have a copy of it, and we have eight copies. They compare against each other to say, hey, is this reliable? Tacitus, we already referred to him, Roman historian. Written in A.D. 100, the earliest copy we have is A.D. 1100. We have 20 copies, roughly 1,000 years after the first copy, after he wrote what was written. Next, we have um, Caesar's Gallic Wars and Livy's History of Rome. Again, this is the stuff that you studied when you went to school. Written in the first century B.C., the early days of the first century A.D. Earliest copies, A.D. 900, 900 to 950 years, 10 to 20 copies that we compare to each other to determine their reliability. We come to the New Testament. The New Testament was written between A.D. 40 and 100. Jesus was crucified roughly sometime in the A.D. 35-ish. We have fragments from A.D. 130, a full manuscript of the New Testament by A.D. 350. It's 30 to 310 years after they were written. We have copies of what was written, and we have over 5,000 copies in Greek and 10,000 copies that were Greek translations into Latin, written through the, in the same time period. The New Testament, according to F.J.A. Hort, a renowned textual critic, says that the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. You can have more confidence in what you find in the New Testament of Scriptures that it was, is what was written and has been passed down to us than most of what, no, than all of what we know about the rest of history. Unmatched in any generation. Second place, Right? What, what else, who, what, what ancient writing comes close? The, the second place actually goes to Homer's Iliad. Anybody ever read this stuff in school? There we go. Steve's the smartest guy in the room. We're coming back to Steve in just a second. Second place, written 800 B.C., earliest copy A.D. 100 to 200, 900 to 1,000 years time-lapse, we have 650 copies. What we know about Alexander the Great compared to what we know about Jesus, everyone knew Alexander the Great 
in history. Jesus comes from a, a corner of the planet. What we know about Alexander the Great was written 400 years after his death. What we know about Jesus was written 40 years after his death. The earliest copies we have of Alexander the Great's life, 1,300 years. Jesus, 130 years. The number of copies, Alexander the Great, less than 20. Jesus, over 5,000. Popularity comparison. In his world, Alexander the Great's popularity would have been comparable to Joseph Biden, and Jesus' popularity would have been comparable to Steve Davis. Now, by popularity, I don't mean how many people like them. I mean how many people know them, just to be clear, right? Although Alexander the Great was at least 100 times as widely known as Jesus was in his day, the documents concerning Jesus are over 100 times more reliable than the documents covering the life and work of Alexander the Great. Beyond that, we have corroborating evidence, historical and archaeological evidence of what we find in the New Testament was actually true. Now, the nature of corroborative evidence is this. It doesn't prove anything, necessarily, but it can disprove things. For example, this is an example of this kind of evidence. I'm not even going to say that word again because it's really hard to get out of my mouth. Was there a census that occasioned Mary and Joseph's travels to Bethlehem? If there was a census, then it supports that this could have happened. If there was no census, then that part of the story is not true. And then we start to question the rest of the story. Archaeologists, historians go back in history and say, did this really happen? They find evidence that there actually was a census taken in that period. Was there a killing of the innocents under the authority of, of King Herod, trying to destroy this would-be king of the Jews? There's no large-scale record that this took place. But this took place in the first century. So if there was like a mass killing in, in our world, like that's flash in the news the next day. If this took place in a small corner of the Roman Empire, it would never travel, it would never be known in Rome. So just because there's not a mass record of it doesn't mean that there couldn't have been a local killing of the innocents. Was there a place called Nazareth? They, at one point in time, said there was not a place called Nazareth. They did the historical work. They continued to do archaeological digs in those parts of the world and find a reference to a place called Nazareth. Was there a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate? Did the sky go dark at some point in time between noon and three when Jesus was on the cross? Like if the whole sky goes dark, people are going to know that. It's going to be in the history book someplace. 
Initially, they said no, and then they found references all the way to Rome from this corner of the world that there was a solar eclipse at that time period. Again, these questions don't prove Jesus, and not every question has been answered. But there is nothing unequivocally that has been discovered that refutes the gospel. Now, this is a... um, There's a ton of stuff. In fact, I'm going to show you a couple things. If this really intrigues you and you want to know more about this kind of evidence that supports this, Lee Strobel wrote um, a a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist, the um, uh, legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, he examines all this stuff from, from a legal perspective. And a really, really good resource and pretty readable. Um, this is another book, C.K. Barrett, called The New Testament Background Selected Documents. It just digs through all the, not all of selected because there's mountains of, of material. That just gives you background knowledge and understanding that supports what we read in the New Testament to be true. Um, this is utterly unreadable. So if you, like, are a super nerd and are really into this stuff, then get this book. If you just want to know more, get Lee Strobel's book. All right? Ultimately, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. This is the most important component of the history of the good news of the kingdom of God. We can, we can know that there was a man named Jesus. We can know that he was a teacher. We can know that, that he um, performed miracles that people didn't understand how they happened. We can know all of these things. But, and we can know that he was crucified and that he was buried. But if he did not rise from the dead, none of the rest of it matters. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Useless. In fact, Paul says, if it's not true, you may as well go go eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. Because the trustworthiness of Jesus hangs in the balance on this. He said that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be killed, that he was going to be laid in the tomb, and that he would rise again. If he didn't do that, then he was a liar or he was crazy. But he wasn't the Lord. He wasn't king. It's central to his message. We're saved from eternal punishment by his crucifixion. But we're saved to eternal life by his resurrection. If he was not raised from the dead, then all this died. And none of us are raised again. We know Jesus lived. And we know that he died. Josephus, Tacitus, the New Testament. Did he really rise from the dead? There are some people who say he didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory. 
that he went through the crucifixion, that he wasn't really dead when they took him off the cross, that they laid him in the tomb, and he laid there for a couple days. And, and then after the um, torture that he went through, most people didn't even, many people didn't survive the flogging, hung on a cross, had a spear stabbed up to his side that bled out blood and water, which was proof that he was dead, laid him in a tomb, and then without any medical care or treatment that he got up and walked out of the tomb. Um, that does not, it seems harder for me to believe that that's true than that Jesus was raised from the dead. Crucified people didn't walk away from their experience. There's, some people contend that the public officials, either the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders, wanted to, stole the potty. It's not fathomable or reasonable that they would have done that because there's nothing more that they wanted to prove that the Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If they had the body, what they would have done with it when the Christians started spreading rumors about the resurrection and the, and the message starts spreading and they want to quell it, they want to put it to rest because they're afraid of, a, of an insurrection, they wanted to stop it. They, wanted to, they would have taken the body and thrown it in the street and said, no, he's not, he's dead. Look, he's right there. They wanted to prove that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, had no reason to steal his body and keep it. The third theory is that disciples stole the body and made up the story. Well, the disciples, if you, remember, if you know this story, right, the first thing they do after Jesus is arrested is what? They run like cockroaches in the light. Right? They're scared to death. They're denying that they even knew him. After, on the day of the resurrection, they're hiding in the upper room. So somehow these chicken littles who had lost their minds and lost their hope and dreams went from that and a couple days later, stole the body and walk out into the streets of Jerusalem, confidently declaring that Jesus is Lord. Did that transformation take place in their lives and how did it happen? The second thing about the disciples doing this is they broke every rule in making up a story. Right? If you have ever been a part of a group of people and you're making up a story, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Get together and get your story straight. Right? We got to all be saying the same thing because if we start saying different things, people won't believe that it's true. You read, the, read the New Testament. Read, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They disagree on how many people went to the tomb. They disagree on how many people were at the tomb. They disagree on when Jesus first appeared and who he first appeared to. It sounds like people who are like reacting to something in real time and trying to figure out this incredible event with just pieces of information as they come in. Which, if it was true, is actually exactly what would have happened. Their first witnesses were women. Another. Women in this generation, in this time, were not, not even allowed to give testimony in the court. 
if they were making the story up, the first witnesses would not have been women. The disciples would have gone to the tomb. They would have seen it. They would have reported it. If they're fabricating the story. And with the exception of John, Judas took his own life. So we have 11 disciples. John, we don't know for sure. He was in exile into his old age, whether he was ultimately killed or not. But we know that the other 10 disciples were all martyred. People will die for something they believe in. People will give their lives for something that they are wholeheartedly committed to. Did 10 men die for a lie? Did they go to their grave knowing that they made up the whole thing but were so committed to it, to a lie, that they were willing to go to their graves for it? It's not proof, but it's powerful evidence. So it brings us to the end. The question that I asked from the very beginning is, is Jesus qualified to rule your life? Is Jesus qualified to rule your life? And if he is, is he your king? If there's not a time in your life when you've ever said, yes, yes to Jesus, Jesus, I believe that you came as the son of man, that you died for my sins, that you were raised to life, and that because of your death, I died to my own sin, have been raised to new life in Christ. If you've never accepted that as your own reality and truth, I invite you to consider the evidence and make a decision. Jesus wants to be your king, not your best friend, not your pillow talk, not your crisis manager, He wants to rule your life. If he is your king, then my question is this. What parts of your domain, the realm that you are responsible for, is Jesus not yet ruling? Not because he can't, but because you haven't yet given it to him. Because that's the reality of our lives, right? We hold on for dear life to what we find peace and hope and security in. And so the process of surrendering our kingdom is a one-time event. I accept Jesus as my king, and then it's a lifetime of discovering, oh, wow, he wants that too. Oh, uh uh-oh, he's in charge of my marriage He's in charge of my parenting. Oh, it's not my house. It's his. It's not my car. It's his car. It's not my money. It's his money. What parts of your kingdom is he not yet ruling over? 
we enter in today to this season, actually on Wednesday, last Wednesday, the season of Lent. The season of Lent is a time of reflection and preparing for the remembrance of Jesus' crucifixion and the celebration of his resurrection. It's a time that's appropriate leading right in from where we've been into the, to that time of reflection, saying, where is my life still not under Jesus' rule? And so as we move into the season of Lent, that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at um, Proverbs chapter 4 and asking some questions, reflecting on some different aspects of our life Submitting them to the question, what does it mean for Jesus to rule? How is he and how isn't he? Am I ready to surrender that part of my life? And what are the things that I need to do? What are the steps that I need to take to let go of that? The series is going to be called Pay Attention. Pay Attention. Lord, thank you that you have... um, in history, with, with real human beings and real time, preserve for us a record of your acts. And for the meticulous effort that went into writing and protecting the testimony over generations. I pray, Lord, for eyes to see and ears to hear and the humility to receive if we come to the conclusion that it is true. In Jesus' name.